the outcomes you get in life are going to happen no matter what you do. Maybe they're going to, you still need to work hard. You still need, but the feelings of insufficiency, they can fuck off. You do not need them. You do not need them. They're not helping you. They're not motivating you. Not after a certain point. They get you over the line, right? They're good for getting over the inertia. But after a while, it's just this, this momentum and you can't slow it down. You go, okay, so enjoy the ride. You know, let's say that, let's treat your success and, and your journey toward doing something great in life or whatever it is that you're going to do in life, less like a car ride and more like a train journey, less like being an active participant and more like being somebody that gets to enjoy the view as it goes by. If you think that you're sat in a car trying to drive a train, not realizing that the train is going to the same destination, kind of no matter what you do, and all that you're doing is obsessing over the fact that there's a tiny little crack above that door. And this fork that I'm supposed to be eating off the table with has got a little bit of a prong wrong on it. It's not the way to spend your time. Hello again, my friends, and welcome to Jorgensen Soundbox. This show is a series of conversations where I have the privilege of learning from my very smart friends. Today, it's Chris Williamson. Chris is a podcaster, one of the great podcasters. His show, Modern Wisdom, has grown over the past few years to have four or five million listens per month. Uh, he does about 400 episodes, three a week. The guy's an absolute beast. This podcast is one of the biggest in the UK, which makes it one of the biggest in all of Europe and features guests like Jordan Peterson, Ryan Holiday, and James Clear. I actually was lucky to be on the podcast as well. He built Modern Wisdom over the past few years after realizing that the very successful life uh, he'd built in his 20s as a club promoter, model, and reality TV star weren't truly deeply the path that he was meant to be on. We explore that journey, uh, which is something that we can actually all relate to. And uh, he's a very introspective man that we we, we get into some of those uh, thoughts and challenges and in ways that I think are generalizable to, to all of us. Just trying to find out if what we're doing on a daily basis deeply reflects who we are. Along the way, we learned some of the details of the club promotion business, which is quite interesting. Um, what he thinks about attractiveness and podcasting as a skill. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a second to review it uh, or go to ejorgensen.com and subscribe to my newsletter or text the episode to a friend that you think might like it. All incredibly helpful things that I deeply appreciate. Another way to support this podcast is to check out my course about building your personal leverage. Uh, we now have a few hundred people who've joined, mostly entrepreneurs, investors, and creators. And we're all in there sharing tools and playbooks and frameworks with each other. Leverage is really the art of accomplishing more. With the right combination of tools, media, people, and capital, you can accomplish a hundred times or a thousand times what you could by yourself. We're living in an age of infinite leverage, and those who learn to wield leverage properly are those who will rise. Go to ejorgensen.com slash leverage to learn more and join the community. We've helped dozens of people so far to scale, hire, automate, delegate, and grow. If you have something working that you want to grow or you just want to reclaim some time from a project, I, I think we can help. Now, please enjoy this conversation with a lord of leverage in his own right, Chris Williamson. Chris Williamson, at long last, we we make it official on on my podcast instead of just uh, just guesting on yours, man. I'm psyched to have you here. Thanks for having me. I want to start by asking you 
what I find some like the helpful, the most helpful question to get to know somebody, uh, which is who are your heroes? Well, that is a good question. I would say Jordan Peterson is one of them. He was the gateway drug, I think, that got me from being a professional party boy, which is what I did for a long time, into into doing a little bit more of this. Uh, Matt Fraser, who was a CrossFit Games champion, I very, very uh, admire his work ethic, the way that he goes about things. Who else would I say? A lot of my friends actually inspire me. We have a mutual friend, Sky, and I, I find that being inspired by people that are around you He's just a, a very nice guy. I, I aspire to be as nice as he is. Um, so those would be those would be three off the top of my head: Sky, Jordan, and Matt Fraser. That's awesome. Yeah, Sky King is is a, a wonderful dude um, and a friend of mine as well. Who, yeah, I admire his his vision and his uh, independence and incredibly nice guy. And Matt Fraser is a unbelievable. It is incredible that he stood so far above what seems like. A, a sport that seems like it just has should have such narrow margins of victory that everyone else is so tight and he just Lionel Messied all of them and it's insane. Different breed, man. Yeah, total different breed. There was this story from Chasing Excellence, Ben Bergeron's book, where he was explaining Matt used to be an engineering student and he would be in the library before an exam and he would have the textbook in front of him and he would recite the entirety of a chapter to himself verbatim. And if he got one word wrong, he would go back and start the whole thing again. He wouldn't let himself leave the library until he'd got it done. And then you see that same no stone left unturned approach when it comes to his training as well. And the outcome is you become the best on the planet. And that making the most of minutes pursuit of excellence that he went for, the outcomes speak for themselves. I, I imagine, I mean, CrossFit seems like one of those sports that's just so all-consuming. Um I mean, I think your minute to minute excellence or something like that, you, like to win an event like that, you have to perform perfectly for years leading up to it. That like every day has to be full, fully optimized. Everyone's getting specialized now. I'm not sure that there's many sports that have accolade in terms of status or in terms of money that aren't like that. You know, there's, everybody is becoming a specialist at everything now. You can't just have someone that decides to, an, an MMA guy that decides to try and do boxing or a boxing guy that decides to do an MMA or whatever. It just doesn't happen because the people within their domain are so specialized that they're going to wipe the floor with you. Yeah. So what are some of those things in your case that uh, you are exceptional at or, or world-class at? Or, or I guess what's uh, the Naval way to ask the question is, what's your specific knowledge? I ask pretty good questions, I think. I'm able to work out the the point of the hole in a conversation that someone isn't filling so for instance last night i was at dinner with uh, jordan uh, and his wife tammy and a, a bunch of other people and part of the conversation was going and going and, and two sides of the table weren't really talking to each other and there was just one question that needed to be asked and rather than try and put my own thought across because i don't really know what i'm talking about but i know where the two different groups of people weren't communicating with each other and i asked a question and that clarified everything i mean that only did happen once i was a, i was by far the dumbest person at the table but my point is that i'm um, asking questions you know following curiosity uh and using that inquisitiveness to try and elicit some sort of a response also not bad at essentializing stuff. So 
somebody talks and talks and talks and talks about an interesting concept about training or philosophy or life or relationships or the weather or space or whatever essentializing that into something which is a little bit more easy to remember than just summarizing stuff in that way is it's something else that i'm pretty good at um but other than that man i make an all right pasta i'm mean, doing all right <laughs> pasta bolognese that's kind of that's kind of it for world-class talents I'm going to suggest a few others um, and just see if you if you agree with them. You have an incredibly successful, uh, I should say, like club promotion business um, that you started when you were in college. That uh, that I'd love to hear the story of. And it's interesting. I've heard you talk about that on a few different interviews. And I think there may be a world class skill in there around understanding uh, motivation, social dynamics some of the dating market that sort of happens in that ecosystem. Um, so I, I wouldn't sell yourself short on that. Do you think that's, that is a, a world-class skill of yours? Yeah, actually that's, that's probably right. It's one of those things where you've done it for so long that you almost forget that it's a skill of yours. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, if you put me in any city on the planet, I'm pretty sure that I'd be able to make a, any nightclub that's there. One of the best in the city in not too long. That's something that I've done for a very, very long time. And that's, you're right. It's understanding, um, group dynamics, what's cool, um, how to entice people and, and incentivize people to find something cool and also to keep your finger on the pulse of sort of who's in and who's out. And that leads into the podcasting stuff as well. You know, you need to see who's on the up and who's on the down and do I want to have this person on and is it, oh, in three months time, they're going to be a bit bigger. I'll wait until then or it'd be a good connection to have or whatever. So yeah, you, you're probably right. I'm going to make two more proposals uh, for things that you're world-class at. Continue with the flattery, please, Eric. That will be very good. <laughs> You've been a model since you were 18 years old. Correct. Um, you are, according to the women in my life who have seen photos of you and many others around the world, objectively an attractive man. There's a lot of like philosophy around that that I feel like people don't talk about. Um, do, do you think that being attractive is a is a skill? Um, and something that is like learned over time that you've developed? Uh, I would say no, actually. I would, I would say that I don't think that being attractive is a skill. I think that for the most part of it, at least physically when you're looking at photos of someone, it's mostly just endowed. Uh, now that's enhanced by making sure that you go to the gym and that you eat right and that you sleep enough and blah, blah. Um, but what, I see as the skill element of being attractive is how you hold yourself, how you move, your poise, your comfort, all of the nonverbal communication that you do, and then the verbal communication that you do, and your eye contact, and all of that sort of stuff. But that's something that I've been able to work at, and that's what I'm much more proud of. You know, the 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 elements that you're able to control. I'm much more proud of that than whatever career of being. And, and let's get this straight, man. Yes, model, right? But the things that I was modeling for, I'm, this wasn't David Gandhi. This wasn't Burberry's new campaign. <laughs> you know, this is Lay's Crisps. Lay's Crisps new campaign, for instance. Or, I, I don't know, a, a, local, a local dental, cosmetic dental clinic or something like that. I'm very much sort of the bottom end of the world of, of commercial male modeling. So I need to, I need to keep that interesting feet okay. on the ground. So, all right. So, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep you out of the, out of the clouds there, even though I think it's an interesting conversation of like what, what counts as a world-class skill, right? Like from, 
from I think the outside world getting paid to hold a bag of lays and just be professionally beautiful and be on reality TV is like a pretty high bar. Um, but, but for like inside that world, like you, you see so much more nuance to it and you see people doing, you know, what you consider world-class work. There's, there's layers to everything, right? You know, you can say, oh man, your podcasts or whatever, but in comparison with Joe Rogan, everybody's basically a beginner. So, you know, there are, there's layers to everything. Okay. I'm going to suggest one more thing and then I'll, and then I'll be done. And that'll be our table of contents that we'll just, we'll just like run through, uh, some of these Beautiful. in detail. So I think that you are also among the best in the world, or at least in, in my sort of purview at this cycle of, of self-awareness and reinvention. Um, it seems from my understanding of your story that you have radically changed your self-image and your, um, focus in life at least a few times already. And I think that that is rare enough that anybody who's done it multiple times is, is in a pretty special place and sort of like then given license to talk through it more and help bring others along even through their first and maybe only transition. But that's, that's an important thing that is, is not obvious that it's a skill, but it, it seems like it to me. I think you're right. Yeah, that would be that would be something. The ability to self reflect is something that I, I I pride myself on. Again, whatever world class and and stuff aside, for a long time, some of the things that I valued, or I thought that I valued, turned out that the rug got pulled out from underneath me, and I started to sort of see the world for actually what appeared to be a bit more truthful than I'd believed for a long time. And I thought, oh, okay, right. Well, I need to be able to reflect on this. I need to be able to dispense with the stuff that I don't care about. And I need to try and make myself into a person that I'm going to be proud of. Uh, and that's there's only really been one serious time that that's happened, but it happens. I iterate on that on a daily basis. You know, I look at, you know, using when you asked me at the beginning, so who, who do I really, really admire? And I admire bits of people, but there's very few people that I admire in wholesale. But Sky is a good example of someone that, you know, I've only known for maybe three or four months, but I, I spend time around him and I think, right. There are elements of this man that I really, really want to inculcate in myself. You know, the selflessness, the energy, the enthusiasm, the excitability. You know, these are things I think, fuck, that's really cool. That would be really cool to be a little bit more enthusiastic and excitable about things. It would be really cool to just do nice things for people simply because, because, right? So I, I think that you can find inspiration in people all the time. And what you can also do I was talking to a friend about this recently is the concept of a reverse role model. So sometimes people say that they don't have anybody in their life who is super positive to model off that they want to be like, yeah, that sucks. You know, it's good to have someone to aim towards, but it's also pretty useful to have someone to run away from. And if you've had a crappy father or a bad big brother or a bad best friend in school or an awful first relationship, yeah, it sucks. And yeah, you need to be really, really careful that you don't start trying to inculcating some of those ways of being. But you know what you don't want to be. And a big part of life is avoiding stupidity rather than being smart. And if you've spent some time around some stupid people, you've got some pretty good examples of people that you don't want to be like. So, you know, you can find role models in a weird way in a place where no role models essentially exist. Yeah, I think it, that's um, one of my favorite questions is, is finding things like of the things that your parents did, what are things that you are going to be very certain to do the same way with your kids? And what are the things that you are going to be very certain to do the opposite of, which is a really sort of learning that takes place at a generational pace, one, one at a time. I want to start with your somewhat chronologically, like with your business, 
let's talk about the club business a little bit, how it got started and and what it's become and sort of use that as the, because uh, that was really the launch pad of whatever you're doing now, right? That was your transition. You, you started You started the business in school? 18, yeah. When I, the first day that I arrived at university. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So like, tell me, take, take me from there. Cool. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I went to Newcastle university, which is a, a red brick. It's good, a fairly highly regarded university in the UK. And I spent all of my money during freshers week partying and didn't have any more cash to dig into. So I thought, right, I need to get a job, sat down next to this guy in my first ever seminar and said, dude, I'm, I'm skint. I've spent all of my cash partying and doing all this. He said, well, I, I used to work for this company in Leeds, which is another city in the north of the UK. Why don't you come to this meeting and, and, and they can give you a flyering job handing out flyers. And 15 years later, that guy that I sat next to is still my business partner now. So we just became mates, started flyering, became junior event manager, senior event manager, city manager. Then we got our first franchise within the first year. And it was a good time. Uh, 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10 was a golden era for running parties and using Facebook because the, the algorithm and the newsfeed just delivered things in a very different way. There was no such thing as pages. There was only groups. Events would be delivered to un ridiculous amounts of people. You could invite all of your friends to an event in one go when we had the right brands and blah, blah, blah. So it's a very different world then. But there was a brief period where you could use that um, weakness in the system to propel yourself to get a ton of brand equity. And we did that. And then we started running weekly club nights. And we just continue to grow the company from there so I, I have barely ever been to a nightclub i know almost nothing about this world like as a muggle yeah as one of the yeah norms. yes please um yeah <laughs> how do you start that how do you go from being an 18 year old kid like how do you win the game of flyering and then win the game like what what are the goals <laughs> like how do you how do you level up um because you kind of ascended this this organization like a like a junior crime Very lord quickly. or something yeah yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's it is a wild west everywhere all over the world. Um, a, the way that club promotion works is very much a wild west. First off, it's populated with people who are mostly drunk or around people that are mostly drunk. So, I mean, that that creates just a the, that's the the code that this is written in. Wildly unpredictable. And yep. <laughs> precisely. Yeah. Exactly. And it's very very much to do with status and who knows you and who do you know and who's coming to your parties. So it's very fickle which creates a, a sense of ambient anxiety. A lot of the reasons why, if you ever speak to club promoters, they won't ever be able to make long-term plans. They'll never be able to tell you what they're going to do in a year or 18 months' time. They can tell you what they're going to do next week. They've got a DJ booked or they've got some parties in or whatever. They can't tell you what's going to happen in 18 months' time because they don't, they don't know. Um, I became the best flyer because I was enthusiastic and PRing is all about not minding being rejected. So, you, hi guys, where are you going tonight? Put a wristband on them and try and get them to go. So it is a a crash course in dealing with rejection, which is quite useful, I suppose. It's been useful later in life. And we just found a niche in the partying world because most people treated club promoting like I can't believe that I love to drink and I am now being paid to party professionally. Whereas we said, we see a vehicle for making cash flow very quickly, and nobody else is treating this like a business. Everyone else is a professional party boy. And it's like a tongue-in-cheek thing for me because I never was, right? I, I treated it absolutely like a business. We were trying to be as um, professional and commercial as possible. 
spreadsheets that would track how different networkers were performing and contributing to the events. What were the most effective flyering locations? So if we put two people on this corner of this street, how many does that generate? Okay, what if we put one on that corner and one on the next corner? How does that change week on week? And then we'd analyze a little bit of the data and feed it back up. And this is, I mean, it's super basic. You know, there'll be quants listening that think, duh, obviously, <laughs> did you, I hope you had a V lookup in that spreadsheet. But whereas for us, this was, you know, worlds, worlds apart. And we just found that by being meticulous and, and caring about stuff, you could actually generate a good party. And there was a lot of luck in it as well, a ton of luck, especially with stuff like this, which is so dependent on social trends. You need to be in the right place at the right time with the right product and the right DJ playing the right music policy in the right venue with the right drinks prices with no one else stepping in. And then once you corner the market, you just put your foot down and you go, okay, we're the cool thing now. And when you're the cool thing, you just start to release the, the Kraken and the Kraken for us was a bunch of different weekly club nights and we got to the stage where uh, I, I finished the season in Ibiza in between my bachelor's and my master's I came back and my business partner said we're starting a weekly Saturday and from then every single Saturday for 204 Saturdays in a row I didn't miss a single Saturday at this place I was taking four-day holidays from Sunday to Thursday so that I would be back so this was from the age of whatever 23 till 27 something like that I didn't miss a single Saturday at this uh, event that we did. So we're very meticulous about it. So tell me the relationship between you as the promoter and the club itself. Like, are you, are you like an affiliate for everything that kind of happens in the club? Yeah, it's an interesting one. So this is typically the way that it works in the UK, and I imagine it must be similar in the US. Venues own a property. They have a license to serve alcohol. They understand how to stock and staff a bar. They know what goes into what cocktail. They train people and have health and safety and stuff. And they have their money tied up in the building. But they don't actually know anybody that wants to party. <laughs> Club promoters, on the other hand, we either don't have the capital or choose not to invest the capital into a venue. We don't know how to stock and staff a bar or couldn't care. However, we understand how social media works. We understand branding. We know what's cool in terms of music. We know how to use social um, proof. We have a team of networkers of other people who all like to go out and party. And the gap in between those two people, the fact that we have people that want to party but no venue and the venue has a venue but no people that want to party, that gap between the two is where the relationship lies. Typically, the promoter will take the door. I'll take what uh, comes from the ticket revenue and the door entry. The venue will take the bar. We will pay for the DJ and the promo. They will pay for the security and the bar staff. And there may be a little bit of a rental agreement that goes from the promoter back over to the venue. Main reason for that being that the costs usually for the promoter are pretty low. Um, once you've got your people into the venue, somebody decides to come in and pay you £5 or £10 or £20, or they walk past, it makes no difference to your costs. So once you hit your break-even, pretty much everything is pure profit. Whereas in the venue, you've got to pay for the stock to serve the vodka with the mixer, with the whatever the amount of glass breakage that you're going to get and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's the relationship between the two. That's really interesting. I mean, that that sounds like the perfect business for, you know, to start in, as a college kid and, and a young person. Like, you don't need a ton of capital. You just need hustle and organization and Precisely. social connect connections. That's awesome. Dude, if, so, if, someone was going to, if someone was going to start doing one thing at university in the UK, I would say join an events company because you get a ready-made group of friends you know, between 100 and 500 people who all know you, who all, they'll have your back. You know, we've had people that have worked for us that have got married, that live together, that have gone away on a holiday together. They're all best friends. 
Uh, it, it's amazing. It's it's the best support system I think you can have for everybody at university. That's awesome. And and you went on to do a master's in marketing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, international marketing. What, what was the experience of like is sitting in there in a lecture hall with like a professor telling you how to do marketing when you'd been running in a very successful events business with like hundreds of thousands of people uh, paying you like every weekend? Are you kind of like this is you like this is a joke? Are you like this is a helpful framework for things that I kind of already know tactically? Like what what was that? What was that like? I very quickly became disenfranchised with university within six months. Uh, I just happened to stick about for another four and a half years after that. So um, it, it very much became a, what's that, good heart's law, where you're simply looking for the outcome. I wasn't bothered about the process of getting there. So I just, I didn't care. I, I was learning things like Henry Ford's scientific models of, of management and Kaizen and lean production. I'm thinking this does not, first off, I'm not interested. Secondly, it doesn't relate to anything that I'm seeing in the real business world. And thirdly, I can't see a situation in which I'm going to need this, but I know that I need to learn it. So I'll, I'll just do the bare minimum. And I got through uni. I mean, we did a, a placement year. We did our own placement year working for ourselves on the franchise. We wrote our own reference of recommendation and we got awarded placement students of the year from the university having written our own recommendation they didn't know that we'd <laughs> written it ourselves but we got awarded placement students of the year but we didn't think we, we didn't care with that either and then i went on to do the masters and and that ended up being the same thing completed the dissertation for it in 36 hours leading up to it. i basically done nothing over the entirety of the year for it 36 hours beforehand so i i, I do i kind of i'm i regret not spending my time at university uh, learning something that I would have genuinely cared about because the business degree and the marketing degree contributed zero to my ability to perform as a businessman. So in that time that I was sat in lectures, messaging people on Facebook saying, all right, mate, you're coming out tonight. I could have actually been learning something that I would have cared about. You know, a philosophy degree or psychology degree would have probably been pretty good shouts. And then I would have actually had a foundational understanding of that stuff as opposed to bro-sciencing it, which is what I do now. But I would say the lesson that I take from that is, and I, that I will give to my kids or anyone that cares, is follow what you are interested in at university. Do not try and get a degree unless you really, really, really know that this is the outcome that you want. You know you want to be a doctor. You know that you want to be a microbiologist or whatever. Do something that's going to interest you because you're going to probably get the outcomes in terms of a career that you want, no matter in any case. And you can always pivot you know, you can do a law conversion in one year mm -hmm. after you've done a normal degree. So yeah, that's that, that's the lesson that I took from it. But I did have a lot of fun. So that's good. Um, yeah, the environment is amazing. Even even if the classes aren't, you know, don't unlock a gateway to another level of performance necessarily. Um, so what's what's the state of the business today? You're still sort of operating it on the side, right? Correct. Yeah. So that still takes over. Business partners got everything on lock in the UK. We do a uh, Thursday, a Friday and a Saturday in Newcastle at the moment. We also do some social media marketing for local companies. We do some content creation and some other bits. And we have a team of about 350 staff or so that work for us. Uh, we have a bunch of full-timers, some part-timers and then some of the guest listers that are kind of just contributors. Yeah. that's. I mean, is it to the point where it's somewhat passive for you now? Yeah, very much so. That's I mean, awesome. even that, man, like, yeah. it's just, uh, you can do it in your sleep. 
I don't know whether there's something that you used to do or you've done for so long that it, it does feel like breathing or walking or getting putting your shoes on in the morning. That's kind of what it feels like. Okay. Is is it a sellable business? Like it's one of those things. Like there's no assets to it, but it is. It does have momentum. <laughs> and- very, 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 very good insight. Yeah, uh, there is nothing. What people are paying for, if they were to buy the business, they would be paying for the brand equity of the name, right? Which is very, very, very difficult to build up. But what they would actually be paying for is me and my business partner, because the brand equity. Everybody knows that the name itself doesn't really matter. What you're getting with the name of the venue, as uh, the name of the events company is the power of the people that run it and the insights of the people that run it. So sadly, it's one of those things where I spent 15 years building a business that I essentially can never sell. Uh, but it's a great vehicle for cash flow. You know, the the margins on it are fantastic. It's a really good business. It's cash rich. You know, no one's coming into your nightclub and saying, oh, I'll, I'm going to pay you in 30 days. I'm going to pay you this <laughs> five pound door entry on 30 days notice. It's none of that. Um, and yeah, it's good. It's a, it's a, a very, very interesting way to learn how business works. Yeah, I love that. And I, I, I'm i kind of always on the lookout for what I think are really good, like entry level businesses, right? I think there's amazing sort of um, some of the people I see with the best careers in in like the mid and long term had some sort of like starter business that they got their hands dirty with really early on and just learned a ton of these sort of like tactics and got the confidence to go through the motions and pull people together and see the market respond to what they do. And um, I think it changes. Did, like, did you feel like it changed you? Uh, I mean, it happened for you at 19. So maybe it didn't. Maybe you just took it for granted. It was, the, it was the most formative thing that I've done. Yeah, it still informs so much of the way that I operate. You know, that, that was what created whatever uh, version of me is here now um, because it gives you a mode of thinking about the world that is so intense. And yeah, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to get rid of. Uh, what are the other businesses? Let's say that if I was to put one in the ring, people should consider working for an events company uh, because you are going to get a lot of friends. It's cash rich. You get to see marketing and HR and B2B and B2C and operations and logistics and blah, blah. You get to see all of that. What would one or two of yours be as suggestions for how someone should get an intro to business um i think the i think the importance of it being like low investment and asset light are are pretty high so um like same same similar dynamic there i think agencies are are okay like freelancing is actually a totally reasonable kind of place to start um i think something with um like digital businesses digital product businesses are like kind of tough to start with but but decent if you can get them going um you know, like the businesses I started in college, I was like, I started importing bamboo t-shirts from China, like that kind of didn't work and was like too cash heavy in logistics. Um, a, a little like somewhat like kind of live tutoring business. Um, and then building websites for companies like worked out. Okay. So stuff like that. Like you, you just kind of start with selling your time. Um, and it shows you the market, but yours is awesome. Cause it's like, you're playing with it's a simple, basic business, but it also you're responsible for filling a nightclub and like you're partnering with real adults with, you know, massive line item budgets. And I, you know, I don't know what the teeth are like your, your cost of failure. Um, if you totally it's flop on big. a nightclub, it's, but it's, it's, it's not too big. I mean, the, the, the pressure's there more socially from the venue and from the people that go, because 
everyone's been in a nightclub that's empty and you know even the customers feel awkward so imagine yeah. what it feels like to be the guy that ran it so when you do that there is pressure there so it teaches you to learn how to deal with a high pressure situation where there's money on the line and there's social gravitas on the line and a deadline it teaches you and a deadline and it happens every single week and you need to make sure that if you have a bad one that you have a really really good one next week um but yeah man it's it's about as good as you can get you know yeah let's talk about one of the uh sort of transitions because that that's like a certain kind of life too that i know kind of came with that and that uh, well how, how many times you said there's really only been one like radically changed like radical change to your self-image um was it the sort of the transition i guess you haven't really transitioned out of that world really you're still you're still kind of running that business right what, what so when did the when did the radical self-image change like the, the one that you okay, would say so, was the biggest <laughs> Yeah, so there was it was really only one. I guess everyone's iterating all the time. Anyone that's self-reflective and interested in that stuff is constantly changing. Uh, I did, as a part of being professional party boy guy, I wanted to get as much status and clout as possible. Uh, so I did reality TV. I did Take Me Out, which is a very sort of fluffy dating show in the UK. Reaches about 4 to 10 million people on a Saturday at 7.30 p.m. It's like, pure pure prime time stuff but it's before what, what we have is the watersheds there's no swearing there's no sex there's no fights it's very fluffy and nice which is which was cool uh so i did that uh and then i did another one called love island which is um now i think being exported to your country and to australia and a few other places and i was the first person through the doors of season one of that and this again 50 percent of it was a yolo 50 percent of it was this is going to be great for increasing my exposure to and status and prestige and such like but man i got on there and i i thought i was this big name on campus party boy and i was surrounded by these people who genuinely are that who lived and breathed super extroverted socially involved lives and i just couldn't find any common ground at all and i was just feeling really disjointed and i thought wow this is not what i thought i thought that this was my place you know and i with regards to Newcastle, the city that I'm from, I was about as well known as it's possible to be. Like literally one of the most well known people in the entire city. And it's only a million people, so it's not that hard to do in any case. But anyway, and I get to this thing and I'm like, oh my God. I thought I was, you know, world championship level. And it turns out that I'm basically an amateur. Okay, well, I, if I've thought I'm this sort of a person and I'm not, there's a discordance between who I think I am and who I really am. And when I was on the show, you don't have any contact with the outside world, no phone, no internet, no books, no distractions, no family, no nothing, right? It's you and the situations that are happening in that, that villa for four, I was there for about a month and there's 24 hours a day cameras and it's kind of intense. And I thought, well, okay, well, that's, that's not me. Let's work out what is. Um, and the solution was self-inquiry, you know, start reading and listening to things that are going to help me work out who I am. And uh, yeah, I ended up dispensing with a lot of values that I'd created and, and I'd relied on throughout my 20s and I thought were me. And uh, I, I find this with a lot of guys, I, I call it the manopause because toward the end of your 20s, guys realize that the values they had at 21 are not going to serve them when they're 31. And they think, am I really going to continue getting a bag in with the boys on a weekend and thinking that that's the epitome of what I've got to do. 
And especially where I'm from, working class town in the northeast of the UK, you know, this is people are born, live, and die in these places. And that's kind of the way that they go about it. And uh, I, for the people that want to do it, that's sweet, but that wasn't for me. And uh, I thought, really, is this is this the most that you've got to offer the world? You know, you in a small pair of swim shorts, like talking about Jonathan and that girl that totally mugged him off last night, bruv. And that wasn't for me. So yeah, that was the that was the change. Came out the side the other side of that TV show and thought I need to make make some sort of pivot here and that was the beginning of the trajectory it's that's so interesting i feel like there's that mirrors in in different ways like naval's story and like bill gates story and like i have heard people say or or like uh steve jobs right like you you were put in a situation where you saw what the extreme version of where you thought you were going looked like and i remember naval being like i remember meeting the you know what a truly great like physics mind or math mind was. And I realized that wasn't me or like Steve jobs going to the ashram in, uh, India and like doing this long meditative sort of like vision quest and being like, ah, the, the, like I see the walls of the universe, like falling in front of me. And now I can craft myself to be whatever I want to be. And I just fucking love the fact that that happened to you on like a forced meditation during a reality show um with a bunch of party people like that's amazing Not many people go on a reality tv show to be catapulted toward a life of virtue and integrity after having had an existential crisis but you know <laughs> well you it can't say it that it doesn't happen that's the reverse role model thing again man you know a lot of the time we want people that we want to model ourselves off but a lot of the time we can find it just as easy to find people that we don't want to model ourselves off and that was that was it it was a contrast between who i was and who I, who I thought, who I thought I was, and who I genuinely was. So I think there's an epiphany around realizing that, like, we are each a character that we have crafted. Like our character is literally a character, and in a case like yours, you you sort of realize like there's a large there's a there's a surprise moment where there's a you're like oh this is actually a kind of a big divergence. Um, but as you say, like we are, we are making small adjustments to that actually every day as we like improve or decide where to focus our energy or attention or change and realizing the, how incredibly malleable and like changeable those characters are that we can become whoever we choose to become if we direct sufficient sort of energy and creativity towards it is kind of incredible. It's powerful, man. I mean, I, I, that's one of the things that made me fall in love with reinvention of the self, right? The fact that if there was one thing that I would say I'd learned from doing my podcast over the last four years, it's that you don't have to live life by design. Uh, sorry, you don't have to live life by default. You can live it by design. Like the default settings that you get in life are horseshit for the most part. The ways that you've dealt with past trauma and social norms and the values that your family had, all of that stuff is mostly bollocks. And when you actually look at it, you can completely repurpose this into something which is much more aligned with where you want to go in life. And um, it's powerful. It's, it's really, really exciting. So what was the, what were the new headings that you, how did you go about sort of learning and charting that new path and conceiving of a new character that you wanted to move towards? biggest thing was that I didn't know what the truth was, what my own truth was. I, I couldn't tell the truth because I'd played this persona for so long. I'm Chris, this big name on campus party boy. And again, you know, guys see this in themselves. I am this 
very sort of base, juvenile, young guy, single, partying, who have I slept with last week, who am I going out with, blah, blah, blah. And um, that that meant that I'd layered on top of me a version of me that was that person. So when I went to try and make my own opinion about something, I couldn't get through the persona. There was this, I'd lied so many times to be to play this role that I didn't actually know what inside of that felt. I didn't know what the person inside of that felt. And um, that was the first thing. Just let's excavate all of this stuff. Let's erode all of this thing away and see if there's something. And you dig and dig and dig and dig. And then eventually you hit something that feels a bit more solid. You go, okay, well, maybe this is an actual opinion of mine. Maybe this is something I actually care about. Um, and the main thing was finding out what the core values are that run my life, right? Because those are the principles, the stuff that the character and the layer and, and things on top. You know, I'm not a father at the moment, but I hope to be in future. Okay, so that means that I, I will have presumably some principles now that I will also have when I'm a father, but I'm not a father now and I will be then. So the character is going to change, but the underlying principles that uh, are, are driving that are not going to change quite so much. So I needed to look at what what are the things that run my life, and I'd hidden a bunch of those. Curiosity was a huge one. I'd just hidden it away because it's not very cool to be curious on the front door of a nightclub, you know? It's you're having a conversation with someone about whether they were off their face last night. You don't want to ask them about. Have you have you ever actually thought about the likelihood of us finding like prokaryotic or eukaryotic life, single celled or multicellular organisms, and whether or not that proves or disproves a great filter? Because that would be what I would watch on YouTube, but I'd never think about having a conversation because that's not what club promoter Chris would say. So. Yeah, get rid of that discordance and, and work out the principles. And, and that that made everything a lot easier. So I was like, okay, well, here's, here's this, these are the building blocks of what I want to do. I'll grow out of that. And how do you go about finding those values and excavating that? I mean, is that a process of, um, is that conversation? Is it journaling? Is it reading more broadly? Is it um, just, you know, staring at the clouds until you you arrive at a truth? Like, yeah, I if I'd been if I was Ali Abdal, I would have had a very perfectly formatted notion template that would have taken me through it step by step. <laughs> I'm sure there's a course, an online course you can buy to uh probably to, yeah. is, man. But uh, you know, to sing the song for the people who aren't that organized and don't index stuff perfectly well and don't have this beautifully formatted laid out plan for how they do things, the solution for me was crushing amounts of content that spoke to me a lot of Alanda Botton from the School of Life, a lot of Sam Harris, a lot of Jordan Peterson. You know, this is a period of time where, you know, 2016, 17, 18 was really, really good for the sort of mindful content that we've come to now find Tanner Penny. And um, I just watched and listened to an awful lot of that and reflected and then started to find Taylor Pearson. He has some amazing epi- uh, amazing exercises online. Chris Sparks, you know, he's he's been a help. Um, you you pick up exercises along the way, but a big part of it was kind of um, making the community of people that you wanted to be like by having having them around you. And you can quite easily do that when you've got people with hundreds of hours of podcasts or lectures or talks or whatever online. Just listen to that. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that as a golden era of, um, but I think that's true. I mean, that's when Farnham Street was cranking stuff out. Um, yep, yep. I'm also a big fan of Taylor Pearson. Um, yeah, th- th- there's a lot of there was a lot of great stuff. Still is a lot of great stuff, but um, it, it was easy to kind of create a world of peers and mentors and find your way good through some of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, surround yourself with good influences and impossible no matter where you were. Right? Where's your progress bar? Do you think on your like 
uh, on reestablishing those those values, or or how aligned are you with um, you know, is your is your character with the character that you want to be today? I'm always quite a big critic of myself, um, so I'll always uh, probably always sell myself short. I think, um, but I feel uh, infinitely closer, right? You know, the, the the person that I am now, I really, really like him. And that's something that I couldn't have said probably four or five years ago. I didn't have a lot of respect for myself. I didn't, and I didn't know why I didn't. Uh, but it makes sense. You know, I wasn't the sort of person that would keep his word. I wasn't the sort of person that would be faithful to a girlfriend. I wasn't the sort of person that would be just, I, these aren't, you know, I wasn't killing people and eating them, but <laughs> I was just a bit of a juvenile dick you know i valued the wrong things i didn't care about the right the right things the things that i genuinely cared about and that add value to the world and now i'm closer to that so that that's the you know i'm really really proud of it um and there's been another change there probably has been another change over the last year or so which has been unconscious and this one's been really interesting for me to watch which is going from being somebody who didn't feel like he belonged in this space whatever this space is, to one that actually feels like there's a reason for me being here and that I actually add value. Uh, and that's that's a really interesting one because that one I didn't mean to happen. It was great. It was lovely that it did and it was, I you know, would have wanted it to happen. Um, but it just kind of came about as a byproduct of things. Kind of the same way as you know, you want to be muscular, but you go to the gym in the hopes of being muscular. And then over time, someone says, fucking hell, man, you're looking, you're looking big. You go, oh, actually, yeah, I am. You're right. I, I, I guess I am one of those gym people now. It just, it, the question about when did you get old? Well, gradually, one day at a time. And um, yeah, so self-belief has, has been one of the last things that's come along for the ride, but that's here in pretty big swaths now as well, which is lovely. Yeah, it's a very interesting um, thing to try to, figuring out when it's productive and when it's counterproductive to to attach kind of your opinion of yourself to your opinion of your work. Um, it being so easy to become critical of your own work and try to keep improving it. Um, but finding the right balance of, of, uh, you know, appreciating your hard work, being glad you went to the gym every day, but not over, over analyzing, you know, how far you have to go or, um, criticizing yourself for that feeling like you don't yet, you haven't yet reached maybe that level of belonging that like you now have that difference between the gap and the gain as ben hardy calls it is is everything I, i've thought about that an awful awful lot because people can become addicted to this right there is a, a a big group of people out there who realize that their poor self-image motivates them to do more and they are addicted to the fact that they don't feel like they're enough because insufficiency is a motivator right insufficiency is a motivator and the reason that you don't want to feel like you're enough is because you know that you're going to be less competitive if you do and we need to accept that. And I do. I, I do. I do. Um, however, I would argue that the difference between you feeling neurotic and anxious and scared and insufficient and jealous and resentful and bitter and concerned and worried and all of those things about your future, the difference between that version of you and the version of you that feels like you're enough in terms of outcomes is probably about 5%. I think that you might get yourself another 5 to 10% of outcomes by being the person, the person that worries all the time. Now, this isn't the case if you're a beginner. 
If you're a beginner, I think that worrying about where you're going to go is really, really important. But what got you from 0 to 50 is not the same thing that's going to get you from 50 to 100, and definitely not the thing that's going to get you from 90 to 95 or 95 to 100. And I'm adamant, man, that most people that have put a good amount of work in are going to get the outcomes that they're going to get in life, no matter what they do. You could try and stop yourself from working, and you are going to find that your programming, your innate desire to do stuff just carries you forward. You go, oh, God, I meant to not work today. And look, I've just ended up recording this podcast or building this business or starting this website or doing something. You think, oh, well, I guess this is just going to happen. So my point is that if the outcomes that you get in life are probably going to arrive no matter what you think on routes to getting them, by being neurotic and worried and concerned, all that you're doing is making the time between now and getting to the place that you're getting to anyway miserable that's all that you're doing there's this aubrey marcus video man if this is what made the penny drop for me right aubrey's at the uh opening of his book uh which became a new york times bestseller and he's answering this question people ask me if you could go back and change anything what would you change and he says if i could go back i wouldn't change anything i would do everything exactly the same except i would feel less said i spent so much time when i should have been laughing or smiling or eating a sandwich just being worried that I wasn't going to get right here, the place that I was going anyway. I spent so much time being distracted from the things that I should have been doing, worrying that I wasn't going to be right here, right now, the place that I was going to arrive at no matter what. Dude, that, it makes chills go down the back of my neck, <laughs> thinking about the fact that the outcomes you get in life are going to happen no matter what you do. Maybe they're going to, you still need to work hard. You still need, but the feelings of insufficiency, they can fuck off. You do not need them. You do not need them. They're not helping you. They're not motivating you. Not after a certain point. They get you over the line, right? They're good for getting over the inertia. But after a while, it's just this, this momentum and you can't slow it down. You go, okay, so enjoy the ride. You know, let's say that, let's treat your success and, and your journey toward doing something great in life or whatever it is that you're going to do in life, less like a car ride and more like a train journey less like being an active participant and more like being somebody that gets to enjoy the view as it goes by. And if, you're, if you think that you're sat in a car trying to drive a train, not realizing that the train is going to the same destination, kind of no matter what you do, and all that you're doing is obsessing over the fact that there's a tiny little crack above that door and this fork that I'm supposed to be eating off the table with has got a little bit of a prong wrong on it. It's not the way to spend your time. I love that the, the train ride versus... Uh, driving framework is is perfect because you can visualize it and it's just something relaxing about sitting on a train looking out the window dozing off playing cards and knowing that you know the the travel's taking care of itself um that's that is awesome and something that i like need to tell myself or have you tell me more often than i <laughs> than i tell myself today it's so it's so easy to forget uh to lose that context man yeah i think um I think that I said this to Jordan Peterson the other day. I did an episode with him and I said, is it possible to take too much responsibility for your outcomes in life? You can have a victim mindset where you don't believe that you have any control over the outcomes, but then there is an opposite where you believe that you have too much control and you stop allowing yourself to have faith that future you is going to sort it. Uh, and the, in this way, I feel there's a tension between cognition and intuition, right? The people that are smart, they can think themselves into more problems than they can think themselves out of. 
a lot of the time and they find problems where there aren't any. God, dude, everything's going fine. <laughs> it's going absolutely fine. Stop worrying about it. And, it, you know, this is me. I'm, I'm saying it to myself here as much as I'm saying it to anybody else. But yeah, you, you're on the train. Just allow the destination come, to come toward you and enjoy the journey. So where, uh, where is your train headed? Chris, what's like, what's your vision for, um, I, I don't want to use the word career for either of us, um, especially you, but like, what is your vision for your, your body of work and sort of the direction that you're headed? I'm not really very good at long-term plans. And I think that this is maybe off the back of being a club promoter for so long and not knowing if you had a business <laughs> in six months time. Um, but I really want to have this year, I'm going to, we're going to try and grow hard. Um, we need to do a little bit, a couple more doublings on the show. Um, and then it's going to get to a, a size of cultural influence, which is an, enough for me to then really be able to, to uh, sink into it. I just want to have some impact, man. Like the, the conversations that I have on the show, the people that I've, I'm getting access to, the things that I hear, especially the last week and a bit since I've been traveling around with Jordan and I've spent time with Douglas Murray and a bunch of other very fascinating people in New York and, and in Texas. There is so many interesting conversations and insights to be had. And I wish that I'd had them when I was 23. And I'm 33 now. And I think if I'd known this when I was 23, man, I would have expedited success and avoided pitfalls in a way that would have been fantastic for me and really useful. And I'm the sort of person that works very well with role models. I've always wanted role models, always wanted someone to look up to, whether they're negative role models or positive ones, right? I just want to have some impact. There's a lot of information out there that can counter the malaise, ambient anxiety that people have at the moment. And the more that I can facilitate that. So that's on one side. And then on the other side, one of the coolest things that I found is that since the show has got itself to the stage of being sizable enough that not everybody that comes on is doing a favor to me, some of them I'm actually able to be a, a springboard for. I can find people who are unbelievably interesting humans and finally be a platform for them to then springboard the rest of their career. And that feels amazing. You know, I find some guy out of nowhere that writes some dope Twitter thread, bring him on the show, and then, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people watch him and then maybe gets invited on some more shows and then maybe he releases a course and maybe he decides that he's going to go do something else. That is, that to me is amazing. The ability to find people who deserve a platform and don't yet have one and just to be that thing. You see this with Rogan, right? I mean, how many people has Rogan made? You know, he made Jordan Peterson, Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein, Jocko Willink, David Goggins, you know, just this bottomless list of behemoths, cultural behemoths now that one guy gets to make. And these people deserve platforms. They deserve platforms, but they don't have one. Okay, you can be that person. That's cool. So more impact for the audience and more platform for the creators. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, the most satisfying thing about having even a baby podcast is getting to do that. I like, I, I barely have a springboard. I have like a, I have a slinky that I like, you know, th to help people along, but I, uh, I find it so fulfilling, um, to share. It, it's, it's just like being able to cast a very big vote about how you want the world to look. Um, and I, I can't imagine the responsibility that you carry with that. Um, cause you have to make a decision about that like once or twice a week. You know, I, I wrote one book about, you know, that's my vote about how I want the world to look. Unbelievable book though, man. You know, I tell, I tell everybody that I speak to that is, if you're going to write, read three books in the world, Essentialism by Greg McEwen, 
The Almanac of Naval Ravikant and The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Like those for me, if you want to just be an effective human in the modern world, those are the three books that you need. Like stop worrying about all of the trivial stuff. Here's wisdom across all of the things that you care about. And here's how not to go skint. Like that's the, that's it. Don't be bankrupt. Be happy and don't focus on little things. Like there you go. That's it. That's awesome. That's you a did good. an amazing job, man. Yeah. Uh, and I love psychology of money too. I, I haven't read, read essentialism yet, um, but maybe I should. Oh, dude, it's, it's, a, it's a counter to everything. Everything that we have in the modern world as a type A go-getting hard charger person, like that's the, that's the solution. Perfect. How does your uh, fame sort of feed into the other businesses? Like, are you, are you pursuing like fame for its own sake? Is it an unnecessary byproduct of what comes out of that? Like, I, I have a lot of these questions for myself when I'm like, why am I tweeting? Like, what what am I actually trying to accomplish here? Um, and I know that in some ways it feeds into businesses. I know that it feels good to my little like ego animal, but I also believe Naval when he says like fame is not the prize it's the cost um but you're one of the most famous people that i know on like a bro to bro basis um so i'm I'm curious like how you think about that if this is a if it's a tax to you or a a reward in some way or or how you think about it dude this is a really really well-timed question um so i i feel like i'm at a little bit of an inflection point on my position to do with this so maybe you can help me work it out. I think fame and being famous and being well-known was one of those values that I'd inculcated uh, while I was young, right? And especially while I was a young club promoter, because the more famous you are, the more people know you, the more people come to your events, the more money you make, the more successful your business is. So all of these things are tied together. I never, ever, ever really questioned whether fame was a good thing or not. It, it's like someone saying, oh, you can have too much money. And you go, no, shut up. <laughs> like, of course not. It's like, being, it's, like, it's like being too strong or too fast or too tanned. Like, it's just not going to happen. It's like, I, I, more is always going to be good. And I read uh, Tim Ferriss's uh, 10 Reasons Not to Get Famous. And that's a terrifying situation. But I think, yeah, how many people overshoot fame? Like three. <laughs> right it's no just more more fame more fame is a good idea and man the last couple of months i've really been thinking about the fact that i don't think that you need it anywhere near as much as you think you do you want everybody to know your name and nobody to know your face is not a bad philosophy but I, i've just been around a lot of people who haven't got super super stardom fame but have been a little bit down and they pay some really, really high costs for it. And you can't, you can't take fame back. It's really hard to become less famous. In fact, it's, it's almost harder to become less famous than it is to become more famous in a way. Like once you're at that point, once everybody knows you as being the guy that wrote this book or did this movie or whatever does the podcast, you, you can't stop that anymore. Um, now, I don't know how you go about uh, creating content and doing things online in the way that we might want to without that being a byproduct. However, I certainly think that the pursuit of fame and the attachment of that, which isn't directly in service of the core uh, goal and mission that you have, I think all of that can probably go out the window. And you've caught me on a really, really good, interesting week about this because I've been thinking about it a lot. This is the message of essentialism as well. The, the very, very few high points of contribution that you have are the ones that are important. And the trivial many that you get distracted by are probably not. 
And for me, it's okay. Where where am I really really adding contribution? It's the quality of the guests that I bring on. It's the quality of the conversations that I have. It's not the cool Instagram photo of me with Douglas Murray and Coleman Hughes at the Super Bowl. It's not me tweeting about whatever the newest culture war topic of the day is because I know it's going to get me a ton of retweets. Like the line between someone watching me make some pithy comment about truckers in Canada to them then watching a podcast of mine is so wiggly that it's basically pointless for me to do. So, okay, what are the points of contribution that really, really matter? And then can I let that go? Because it's it's a, a cost and it's an ego attachment that I don't need. What are your thoughts? I think that's an interesting, well-articulated thing. I think for you, I think in your work in particular, it's going to be very difficult to separate yeah, the, the fame of your name and face from, from the outcome. Um, I always looked at it as a being a tax. Um, like they don't pay actors that much. Like they pay them because they have to get famous in order to do their jobs, not like if, if they were, the, if fame was that great, they wouldn't have to pay them because people would just show up and get famous on their own voluntarily. Um, which, which you see happen in reality shows all the time, but it's because they can turn that, like they're either misguided or they can turn that fame into more money through their social or whatever. Um, but yeah, man, I, I really, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of time looking at people who are like a little farther ahead of me on these tracks and being like, Oh, like I, I want 200,000 followers just because that's the next goal, you know? Um, and then I remind myself, like, that's not actually my goal. Like my, I'd be much happier with the, the meaningful respect of a relatively small audience that I care about and that I'm helpful to. And to me, like scale is not the, the indication of success. Like, growth to some extent shows quality, I think, because people share something that had an impact on them and that's great. Um, but I don't, I, I, I try to suppress the part of me that like instinctively wants more fame for fame's sake. And I already, I mean, like it, I have no, I have no fame compared to you, literally a rounding error. And I already feel uncomfortable with the amount of like times I have to say no to people who just message me for random favors or requests or asks. And I just like, that hurts my stomach every time I have to do it. Cause I always want to default to generosity. And I just can't imagine how much worse that gets in Rogan or Ferris's world. You know, I also don't think that downregulating the number of opportunities that you get is the best way to decide which opportunities to take. You know, like you don't want to limit the number of incoming things that are cool that you might want to do, but to make it easier for you to choose which things you want to do, like that's a cop out. That's true. And it lowers your, your net opportunity cost. Yeah, precisely. Right. Um, but the question there is why do I want to reach 200,000 followers? You know, what's this in service of, or why do I want to do whatever it is? And this is why it's so important to constantly come back to what is my highest point of contribution? Like what's the mission? And the mission for me, long-term, have impact and make the world a better place than it was when I was there. Not that it was bad when I was there, but just that had I have had the sort of show that I create, life would have been easier for me. It would have been more enjoyable. I would have been happier. All of these things. And let's continue to do that, right? And anything else, anything else shouldn't be figured into the equation unless it contributes to that or facilitates it. Yeah, that's a very good rule. Um, I, I like that a lot. I'm curious what makes 
you, your highest point of contribution, you said, is having a great conversation, featuring a wonderful guest, bringing awareness to a new set of ideas that can help sort of either our generation or the next generation and, and bring people along and um, leave the path a little more paved than you found it. What makes a great conversation in your eyes? Like, how do you how do you know when you're like, I that was a home run. I connected on that one. I feel great about it. And you just like, you know, you got the conversation pump and you walk out proud of yourself for a job well done. How do you, how do you know this? Yeah. So it changes between different people a lot. You can have, there's many different ways to get up the mountain of awesome conversation. Some of them are really fast back and forward. Some of them are very, uh, they're adversarial and, and you kind of work against them. Some of them are monologues where you just need to poke people in the right direction. Some of them are essentializing where you need to distill down whatever this person's saying. You need to get them to clarify and you're constantly sort of pushing and touching. That's very much the sort of the Jordan, the, the uh, JBP way of, of podcasting with him is that you're trying to just essentialize clarification, clarification, clarification. Um, but you know that it's good when you come out of it and you can't remember anything that you said. That's the best way to have a conversation. I can't remember a single thing that I said during the last two hours because I, all I was thinking about was what was going on next. And that to me is the is the, the pinnacle really of just losing yourself in the conversation. And you go back and you realize that there were all of these little concepts, these little quotes. You know, for me from today, thinking about the fact that um, fame, uh, fame is the price, not the benefit or whatever it was that you said. Like that little bit of an insight there is a really, really lovely way to frame things. And it encapsulates, so that's essentializing an overall topic, right? Okay, I can take that away. So when you go back and listen to it and realizing that this can be split down into five little parts that I can synthesize and take away with me, but you just lose yourself. Having a conversation where you can't remember what you said is is probably about as good as it gets. How, how did you How did you become good at this? I can imagine a lot of sort of potential answers to that question, but you're basically a professional conversationalist and, and speaker. Um, is, is there a, a discipline, a training? Uh, do you just sort of let the, let the water like sand off your rough edges over, over the reps and hours that you put in? Yeah, that's probably about right. It's just, you do something, you know, three times a week for an hour and a bit and you're going to get good at it and go and do karate or break dancing or crochet stitching or something you're probably going to end up being pretty good at it and um yeah it was intentional though it was very much l listening back to episodes listening back to the the thing I, I had a bunch of weird verbal tics so i'd say mm -hmm, a lot i would i would uh, provide clarity to when people were speaking and if you watch oprah as a good example she nods she uses huge use of nods She's got this huge repertoire of different nods, right? There's the there's the short one up and down. There's the big one like this. Yes, keep going, keep going. And you say, okay, well, useful. I can use nods then. Nods nods are a good thing. And then you start to take it from system two, being deliberate into system one, being automated. Okay, what's the next thing? Uh, being quiet uh, and learning to deal with silence is a, a huge part of this. You know, we had that Elon time um, this video that went out from his episode with Lex Friedman where it was like 23 seconds or 32 seconds or something of silence because Lex knows that gr good podcasters talk well and great podcasters don't talk well. Being able to sit with the silence of something is really important. Um, listening to the art form, so listening to people that are fantastic. You know, Rogan's got some great things that you can take from him and Sam Harris has got some great things that you can take from him. 
learning when to ask questions and probe. So one of the best questions you can do is, what do you mean? Just you can throw that in whenever anybody says something, remembering that you're not supposed to be an authority as well. It's significantly easier being a, a podcaster than being an interviewee. So much easier, man, because you're allowed to be an idiot. You don't need to get anything right. You're not supposed to posit yourself as some sort of intellect or insight about things. You're just constantly going, not sure, not sure, not sure. And as soon as you feel that arise, you just go, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What do you, what do you mean by that exactly? And then away the person, this brilliant person in front of you goes and tells you exactly what they meant. You go, ah, oh, brilliant. Now I know. It's so easy. It's so easy when you when you just allow the curiosity to come forward. I worked with a speech coach for a while. I've worked with a, a comedy coach for a while in an effort to try and improve on my timing, improve on my diction. So, you know, I, I had some sort of specialist stuff in there as well. But for the most part, repetitions, intentionality, uh, saying less than you probably think that you need to, especially as an interviewee, uh, sorry, an interviewer. Um, you just don't need to ask questions that are that long. They'll get to the point. And if they misinterpret the question, a lot of the time it's really, really interesting. They misinterpret the question. You go, oh, this shows something about them. This is a little bit of a bias that they have because they want to answer that. Well, the questions that you have, what you're doing as the, the podcaster, you're trying to move the guest towards something that they think is interesting. That's basically what your questions are or something the audience thinks interesting. And if you ask a sufficiently open-ended question, the guest's going to take you there. Imagine that. Imagine them choosing not only the question, but also the answer as well. Brilliant. Just do the whole thing. You can sit back and watch. <laughs> I love it. How much do you think about the scale of your podcast and the like the inherent leverage of it? Like, was, the, was that part of your decision to kind of go into the medium? No, not at all. Um, leverage is a word that I really only learned since spending time being exposed to the work that you've helped to promulgate and yeah i don't i don't really think i i didn't think about it at all i wanted to have conversations with interesting people i wanted to be able to have the excuse to speak to people that i respected and i thought were cool and to learn from them and then it, it's just ended up being this thing and you know still in the grand scheme of things man we're at what like two hundred eighty thousand something subscribers on youtube and we do you know a million plays or whatever per month on audio a couple of million plays on on youtube it's still very much you know mid mid-tier in the grand scheme of things um but there is a lot of there is a, a huge amount of leverage with it so from that the fact that your efforts become completely decoupled from your ability to distribute after a very very short amount of time you know you do it for three or four years and you go okay i'm still having the same sort of conversations that i feel like i was having a few years ago and now a hundred times or a thousand times more people are listening to them and I haven't changed anything. I skills got a bit better and they've got a slightly nicer camera and stuff like that and slightly better contacts for guests. Not really much has changed. So, you know, the, the same thing goes for club nights as well, man. You know, you put a good night on, you open the doors, 500 people come, 1,000 people come, 2,000 people come. Well, nothing really has changed, but the momentum of picking up that, that gravitas and that cool and people want to be there and they want to be seen there and it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, the, the feeling of doing something that becomes sort of self-perpetuating uh, and growing is is really incredible. And I, I, I remind myself of this at, at even my tiny podcast scale. But, you know, the way I think about the leverage that you have 
and I don't know if you think about it this way, but I, I want to like talk through it with you um, and see if I can give you a new appreciation for it. But I think of what we're doing now, recording a new podcast as creating this sort of a digital clone of Chris. Like it's a purpose built, you know, single function machine that then goes off into the world and can do this one repetitive task of having this one conversation for anybody on demand at any point in parallel or in the future. And you've done what, 400 episodes? Yeah, for 30, for 40, something like that. Yeah, of, of just yours, plus other podcasts that you've been on. And so there's maybe there's 500 digital clones of Chris out there in the world ready to run this, you know, one to two hour like program script. And you've got, did you say a million plays a month? Uh, across everything, it'd be three to four million plays a month, yeah. That, like, there is no stadium in the world that can hold that many people. <laughs> like, you, you are, you're like, you're performing shows in at digital scale at global reach at a rate that, like, Keith Richards could never have upheld, right? Like, the reach and the, the leverage that comes with that is just totally blows my fucking mind. Like if you if you don't think of it that way and just like wake up and look in the mirror and be like, I stand atop Leverage Mountain every day. Like this, <laughs> my life is a miracle of modern tools and technology. Like, please add that to your morning routine. <laughs> I, I that's that's a good way to look at it, man. Yeah, I I think I think Rogan Rogan has a really good insight around this, which is that after a while you you kind of have to stop thinking about how many people are listening. And I don't know whether I'm I'm quite there yet, but I kind of get the sense that I might be soon because one of the things that people want is they want such a naturalistic leaning, listening experience, right? They don't want to feel like you are aware that they're listening because that really, really kind of takes out of some of the beauty of it. And it, it, it's twofold here. The first one is that it actually destroys the, can damage the quality of the conversation. But the other one is that people listen because they hope that they're getting it's almost like a behind the scenes access where they realize they don't don't want you to know that they're there and they want to get you in your most unencumbered most flow state conversation that's what they're after so overthinking it i think actually is is probably going to be the detriment of the conversation because you're going to be so in your own head that you're like oh fuck thinking about all of these people that are going to listen and what about the question and oh i didn't say that thing right whereas if you just have the beginner's mindset that you did when you did episode episode 150 i think is when you've got it absolutely right 150 episodes you've spent enough time building up your skills and you still don't care about whoever it is that's listening and that's about bang on that's perfect yeah I, that's what i enjoy about i mean it's such an it's an intimate thing you know, a real, a real good conversation, even between two people is an intimate thing. And then when you feel like you're just the third person kind of sitting there absorbing it, you know, small conversations is where I've learned most of the mo important things that I know. And part of what made me want to do this podcast is to scale that out and, and, you know, bring what I've learned from you and make that accessible for other people um, who may not have the ability to access that conversation on their own. And like, that feels like magic. What, what, what do we think you give up when you record a conversation versus have it offline? You know, some of the people that you've had conversations with publicly versus privately, um, 
I don't expect them to be different people, but I, there is definitely a filter or a, a change of focus, I guess, that exists there. Absolutely, yeah. You have um, you have a degree a performative aspect because you know that you're being held to a high rigorous standard by whoever it is that's listening. Uh, there's definitely the specter of cancellation that looms over you, no matter what you're talking about. It can be the least cancelable topic of all time, and there's still a way that you would be able to find yourself on the wrong side of the mob. So you definitely play with ideas less. You are more. You play it more safe. There's more of a temptation to fall into scripts. So everybody has a common answer for questions that they get asked frequently. If someone says to you, hey man, so tell me about the process of writing the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, right? You don't generate a new answer every time. What you do is you came up with an answer within the first 10 times that someone asked you that question, realized that was the best one, maybe edited it, A-B split tested it a little bit, and now you've just got this distillation of this script that you just, bunk, okay, there we go, and you, you're offline. You're offline, and the that script is running in the foreground, then you come back online once it's finished. You need to be very careful with that because it stops you from thinking. And that's the, it's such a dangerous situation to be in, right? Because one option is to say the thing that you know is effective. The other option is to try and come up with a new answer, which might be worse, which might make for a worse episode. You might garble it, or you might say something that's wrong or whatever. But the other one engenders lazy thinking. So that's something that, especially if you podcast a lot and you do it consistently, you need to be careful of because you just fall into these routines. You can have the same conversation over and over again. Um, I think it's called the golden hammer uh, is what Gerwin de Bogle calls it. He says that it's when a, a public intellectual or a, a particular public intellectual has one concept that they're so obsessed with that they start to retrofit all of reality to that single concept. And this is kind of the same thing, that you have one answer that you give for questions. Uh, you, there's a couple of guests that I've had on the show where no matter what question I asked them, they were going to answer it in a way that I'd heard on five of the podcasts previously. Like, dude, that wasn't the question. Like, that wasn't, that wasn't the question. But you have these scripts running and that's what you fall into. So that's something else that you need to be careful of. But yeah, I mean, not playing with ideas sufficiently, which actually over time can, it's difficult to work out. Am I not playing with ideas because I don't have any ideas to play with? Or am I not playing with ideas because I'm terrified of getting canceled or whatever it might be? Those are some of them. And plus, you, you, I like talking about ideas, but I like talking about people as well. You know, I'm a gossip monger uh, by profession for 15 years, <laughs> and I find it interesting. I find interpersonal dynamics very interesting. So I want to ask people about other people that they know, but you can never do that on a podcast. Now that's kind of one of the unwritten rules of it that you don't, unless someone's got out and out beat, unless it's Jordan, tell me about Ethan Klein calling you out on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. You know, it's not, you, you can't really do that. So, and those are some of the most interesting ones, finding out the dynamics of how stuff works. So, those are some of the prices that you pay. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I, the gossip is a, is a thread that we can maybe pull because I think, um, there's a, always a version of gossip that people look down upon that like they don't participate in but there's a version of gossip that exists in almost every domain you know tech twitter would be like oh we don't care about the kardashians like that's worthless gossip and then like have eons of memes about like some 
CEO who did something stupid or like. But meanwhile, Chamath goes on and says something dodgy about China, and that's all that anyone talks about <laughs> for three weeks. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, you don't talk about gossip, guys. Sure. Yeah, yeah. There's always gossip to be had um, of different flavors. Uh, everybody just cares about a different different type of it. I tweeted something a couple of months ago saying stupid people talk about people, smart people talk about ideas, podcasters talk about people talking about ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's the new version. Yeah, uh, it's not that there's a hierarchy there at all, but yeah, man, gossip's gossip. Gossip's interesting. You learn a lot from it. I don't. It's not about gossiping about other people. It's saying, hey, have you seen this thing that occurred with this person? What are your thoughts on it? Like that's interesting, especially if the person knows the person, especially if they know both of the people that are involved, or maybe they know some information from behind the scenes. And it's not this Machiavellian, I want to be able to get ahead so I can find this. It's okay, this is a dynamic that's interesting. And I had some presuppositions about it because there's an asymmetry of information. I know this much about it from what I've found publicly. I know this much about it from what I know personally. And then someone's going to add some more information in and let's see how my biases and my assumptions about this get completely unended. And now let's see where I'm at. And and it seems like a mechanism for people to orient socially. It's like, hey, here's an event that happened. Do we share the same judgment of it? Are we on the same team? Can we feel good that we share an opinion about this sort of thing? Um, which is also interesting to kind of watch unfold. Yeah, very much so. Uh, you have a line that I really love. Um, I, I think it's, I think it was in the context of you kind of, uh, leaving behind an old character and, and forging into kind of uncharted territory, um, as you examine your values, but it's, uh, loneliness is a tax you have to pay for a certain uniqueness of mind. Yeah. That's stolen from Alanda Botton. Uh, Alanda Botton is fantastic. He's a freak. Um, an absolute freak so if you if you'd allow me i can expand on basically that entire that entire thing so it's a a video called um why you are fated to be lonely and the argument is that the more unique and nuanced you're thinking the fewer people are going to be like you and that loneliness is a tax you have to pay to atone for a certain complexity of mind that no matter how well-meaning or kind or good other people are ultimately in the sea of life they are stood on the shore waving cheerily while you drown in the swell and that you are you are given a choice between compromising what it is that you think and the person that you are in order to become closer toward what you think will get you acceptance or you can continue to pursue the thing that you're genuinely interested in and to think the way that you want to think or think the way that you know that you're programmed to think and pursue those things uh, and for a long time, this resonated with me massively because throughout all of my 20s, I'd compromised the things that I thought in an effort to become accepted. And then realized after a little while, well, hang on a second, not only has this not made me be accepted because people can tell that you're playing a role, it doesn't make you fully accepted. It also provides a buffer in between anything that you do ever and what people tell you about it and the praise that you you receive for it. So if you're playing a role, anything that people tell you that's good about the role that you played is never going to resonate on an existential level because you know that they're just applauding a role that you played. You know, people don't love Chris Hemsworth. They love Thor. They don't love Russell Crowe. They love Gladiator. Why? 
because they're not in love with the person behind the scenes. They're in love with the person that's playing a role. And this is how you can feel alone in a crowd or hollow in victory. You know, I've stood on the dance floor of thousands of club nights and not felt connected to the success of them because I was doing it from behind a persona. And it's only by putting yourself out there and actually being a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit more connected to the things that you do that you can feel love as opposed to praise. You're not going to feel love for any of the things that you achieve in life. You're only going to feel praise if you're playing a persona and hiding who you truly are. So, so the did you find that the bar for gratification was much... Well, it doesn't... It, it, I was going to say it's much lower when you're pursuing something that's aligned with who you really are and what you really want to do but it's more that the that there is no bar no matter how high you achieve when you're misaligned right precisely and it doesn't matter about the bar when you're completely aligned because you're doing something for its sake and you would be happy i've always said it i would do my show if no one listened i did my show when no one listened it's the same thing like I've done this, I've done this when we did five, there was one week in March of 2018, we did five plays in one week and I still went and did an episode the next week and it didn't feel bad because I was interested in what was going on. It doesn't matter. Like, and the same thing goes for, this is, this is the beautiful side of do something that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Now that was interesting. I've got a cool story about Tim Cook here actually. One of my friends is one of the um, uh, branding guys at Apple. And they had this webinar, all hands thing. Tim Cook was there and someone said something to the uh, the extent of, people say that if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And Tim Cook said, well, here at Apple, I found that not to be the case. Said, if you do something that you love, you'll work harder than you ever had in your life before, but the tools will feel light in your hands. And I think, fucking hell, if that's not the, the, the case, right? Like you're going to find the thing that you love, find the thing that you really care about doing. And this could be the business, the project, the sport, the family, the support system, the friendship, whatever it is, right? Keep on searching until you find that thing or that combination of things and then turn yourself into a husk, making it, the most extreme version of that that you can like completely leave it all out on the field of play pursuing that that's i think what everybody should be pursuing they should be aiming to find the thing that they really really want to do and then empty the tank on that thing and why not what else are you going to do with your time time's going to go by anyway you know the time is going to pass in any case Find a thing that you want to do and then just put your foot to the floor and don't stop. Douglas, I, was, I spent a lot of time with Douglas Murray since I've been here. And he says he has this voice in the back of his head when he's writing. And the voice says, you mustn't stop. You mustn't stop over and over again. It just reminds him that he, he needs to keep going. This is the thing. This is his highest point of contribution. It's what he's best at in his life. You mustn't stop. You must keep going. Why? Well, because this is the thing. Did you struggle to find the thing? It it seems in the narrative like you went from, well, I was doing the club thing and then I started a podcast and then it turned out that that was my highest contribution and I and I put the hammer down. Um, were there were there dead ends and was it was there a maze in between you and finding your way to the Modern Wisdom podcast? 
Yeah, a little bit. Um, I DJ'd a lot. I I modeled a lot. I you know was was kind of like seeking something that was going to be fulfilling. Yeah, I, it was fortunate, man. It was really, really lucky that I, I got invited on some shows and I enjoyed it. And I thought, oh, this is cool. And then I found out that I'm not, I didn't totally suck at it. And then, yeah, I, I feel, I feel the fortune of, uh, and the knife edge of just how tight it was for me to have not found something, you know? And especially if we say that there's multiple domains that this could have been, and maybe it would have been sports commentary or sports punditry or something. Maybe that would be interesting, whatever. There's not that many things. I don't think that would have lit a fire underneath me as much as doing my show does. Um, and that's that's scary, man, because, you know, the, that means that you're not actually that far. There's not that many degrees of freedom for you to get it wrong. And you think, well, if there's not that many degrees of freedom, then it means that the chances of me not finding it and the chances of other people not finding it are pretty high. And this is why I think that there needs to be a little bit more empathy when it comes to, dude, well, just do what you love. You know, it's a fucking hell. I don't know what I love. I don't know what I love. I, I, I'm, I'm trying. I'm not trying. I'm not going out of my way to find things that I don't enjoy <laughs> to do, obviously. But I just haven't been exposed to the things that I do enjoy to do. So, yeah, it's um, it's fortunate. But this is there's a format for this as well. You know, explore before you exploit. Spend your twenties doing lots of different things. Go to different places. Travel. Meet people. Try and do different pursuits and see what really resonates, and then go for that. That's a, a good solution. Do, do you still feel um, any loneliness as a, as a penalty for your uniqueness of mind? That's a very good question. No. And I asked Jordan this question the other day, and he said no as well. Uh, and looking back, it was a stupid question because I would have answered it the way that he did. Uh, no, I don't. And I think that it's because... The problem you have when you talk about loneliness is a kind of tax you have to pay to atone for a certain complexity of mind. Loneliness within which group? Loneliness from whom, right? The problem that I found was that I was in a working class town in the northeast of the UK wanting to talk about all of the things that I talk about on my podcast. As soon as I get onto my podcast... I have not only a person across from me that desperately wants to talk about whatever it is I want to talk about at a far richer resolution than I can talk about because they're the specialist and I've just read the book. But then there's 4 million people a month that want to listen to it. And then they'll, they'll message me about it or tag me in something on Twitter or Instagram that was their thought about it that I hadn't thought of. And I think, okay, well, I've, I've just created the world of people that think the way that I want to think. So I think that it's just scope neglect, really. You know, loneliness due to complexity of mind is due to you not being around the right people. I found this with with alcohol, that a lot of people bond with their friends because they like to drink in the same places on the same nights of the week. And if you take the alcohol away, a lot of the time you will find that you're not actually particularly good friends with people. They're just convenient drinking buddies. And if you can't stand to be around your friends when you don't have a drink in your hand, then you definitely need to get better friends. And I think your answer means like just because you answered no doesn't mean it's a stupid question. Like I think it's a very important question, um, and the answer is important because you shouldn't you shouldn't feel like you have to be lonely because you have unique thoughts. Like there's a very huge global community, and I've heard you say like there's a Reddit thread for absolutely everything. Like loneliness is about scope, and that there's a community for almost any set of thoughts that you have, and 
um, that you you have more than ever the ability to change your environment and go find that community or create that community. And the rewards for doing that are incredible. That, that it will help you lessen that gap between you know who who you might want to be or who your core values are and the the character that you play on a daily basis. Well, think about it this way. Think about the fact that maybe what you want to talk about would be really advantageous to some other people as well. And maybe if you were if you were the first mover in this situation, maybe you would bring a bunch of other people along with you. And then maybe their lives would get better and then maybe they would bring some people along with them as well. Imagine that. Yeah, I, I love, um, I mean, your, your whole life seems like an attack on the entire concept of a stereotype. Um, I mean, you, you, you've just combined such a beautiful, disparate uh, set of like traits and opinions and outlooks and experiences. Um, I mean, things that we entirely glazed over in this is that like you played cricket at some incredibly high level, you know, we touch barely on, you know, modeling and reality TV and club promoting and marketing. And I know you and, um, you know, George, like you've traveled internationally, like there's just, um, there's just so much to you and you embrace the fact that there is no conceivable stereotype that you will fit in and you just want to reach out and pull as many unique things in. There is a price to pay for that. Um, you know, there's a price to pay for not being an archetype. And this is something that I've battled with for a very long time, um, that most people want to be able to get you very quickly. Why is it when you watch a sitcom that the nerd wears glasses or the villain wears black or the hero has muscles or the maiden has big eyes or whatever? Well, it's because within the space of five seconds, they want to be able to expedite you understanding the narrative. They want you to be able to understand exactly the role that this person plays. And I think that because partly of popular culture, partly because we're lazy thinkers, um, people want to see those archetypes in those around us. They want to be able to put you into a pigeonhole. Uh, and another thing is that it, it makes you easier to trust because I can predict what Eric's going to think or do next. If I know that Eric's the the, the hero or whatever, I know that he's going to get up and go to the gym and come back and do whatever like i know what your behavior is going to be like and when somebody continues to pattern interrupt what it is that you think that they're going to do inherent in that is well i'm not actually too sure if i can predict what this person's going to do i'm not really even too sure it's not not trust them but it's definitely not be able to extrapolate out what, what i can expect from them quite so easily and definitely not understand them you know there is still a, a, a there is a, a price to pay for breaking those stereotypes and you know there's a there, there is a beauty in simplicity in 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 predictability as well it certainly means that it's easier for you to resonate with people think about the the most popular kid in school the most popular kid in school wasn't the most nuanced kid in school right <laughs> he was the one that was he was the one that was really obvious and and easy to understand now that's not to say that in this world of infinite connection that you can't become popular by being the nuanced guy Right, Sam Harris is a perfect example of this. He's somebody who perpetually breaks the expectations that people have around him. You know, you have someone who's anti-Trump, anti-woke, pro-vax, anti-Biden, like with a huge public platform. He's anti against all of these things, and he has cultivated a very specific position, being that guy, and people seek him out. Because they, they want to have their viewpoints challenged and so on and so forth. 
but it's there's it's doesn't come without its costs. Well, what are, what are the form of the costs that you that you feel? People don't get you. People don't understand you very easily. So until you find the right group that you're supposed to be with, or until you find a way of communicating whatever non-typical person it is that you might be, and everyone's non-typical, right? No, no one, no one is the average of the average. But until you find a way to communicate it effectively, and until you find people with whom that message is going to resonate, you're going to feel lonely because you're going to be given a choice between compromising the person that you truly are so that people will un- understand you more or people not understanding you and you feeling more lonely whilst sticking to the, the truth. You know, finding the people who are willing to do the work to unpack and understand and accept all of the, all of the nuances. Yeah, precisely. And that's not very common. Um, uh, now someone somewhere will have been born into the most eccentric family that understands how to blah, blah. But, you know, for the most part, people that are just born in working class town B and working class town country B, like it's not, it's not going to make a difference. This is something that I've actually, um, changed my mind on, I think since, or, or at least like broke the default that I was given during my upbringing. But I, you know, you're kind of taught by your parents coming up that anybody who strays off the path is taking a risk. You know, oh, oh, they like they went to a different school. They took a gap year. They, uh, you know, started work instead of just going straight to college. Um, you know, they skipped class to, I don't know, do do some like pro sports thing. Like that the in in adulthood, it's more it's much more clear to me that there's an advantage to being unique and having a wide set of experiences and a unique background. Like interestingness is much more of an advantage than you know, performing, even performing really well on the trodden path. And so I think like there's, there's a huge benefit to the sort of, um, I don't know, this non-stereotype, super unique character too. Like that's what makes you such an interesting interviewer and curious and gives you this like sort of background credential to unpack all of these things. Like I'm sure it helps you navigate the, the broad world and all the different relationships that you kind of come into as well. The, reason that our parents thought that way is because things were much more scarce 30 years ago you know you couldn't what do you mean what do you mean that you're going to talk to people on the internet and you're going to travel travel around having a conversation with them how's how's that going to work are you going to and because there wasn't an option there you know with leverage with the way that all of the things that you talk about to do with scale are, are capable now you can and I would be I'm going to be very interested to see what our children's generation thinks about this because we are the ones that learned one thing and experienced another but hopefully the ones that are coming will learn one thing and experience the same and hopefully that's going to be much more liberating but yeah that's a lesson that everybody needs to learn like and the price for failure now is so low I think you know the price for taking a little risk don't multiply by zero don't get a face tattoo don't drive without your seatbelt on you know, simple things, right? But the price for failure of just going and trying it, I'm going to go to see what it's like to do a season abroad working in a bar. What's the worst that happens? You know, you turn around, you come back after because it's not for you. You go, on, you go on a TV show, you go, oh, well, that was a bit weird. Well, maybe you learn something, you know? And I, I think that optimizing for adventure, optimizing for insight is one of the best things that you can start to do. I love that. Chris, dude, Thank you so much for taking this time, teaching me. Um, 
I don't know, showing a little bit uh, more of yourself than I've I've learned before, and um, bringing some of your world class world class talents. Uh, I'm, I love your podcast to death, and look forward to seeing hundreds more episodes and seeing what happens as you um, keep unleashing and, and honing your talent even more. Thank you, man. Well, look, I need to I need to thank you as well. The the work that you put in with the almanac of Naval Ravikant it was monstrous, right? Absolutely monstrous. And you don't know the level of impact that that's had on people. You know, the the joy and the pleasure and the insight and the improvement and all of that stuff that is brought to people. That really is a, a magnum opus. And yeah, maybe it's not an original body of work, but it wasn't going to happen if you didn't do it. So uh, thank you as well. Thank you for bringing me on. Uh, I'm excited for whatever comes next. We've seen a couple of little bits in your newsletter about what it might be and stuff. And I'm excited. I'm excited for that too. So you know, whatever comes next from Eric Jorgensen, I'm behind it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm following rapidly for, uh, your next, your next tweets, your next podcast. Um, it's, it's an exciting thing to see the, see the squad come up together. Um, yeah, I think so. That's, that's one of the coolest things, man. You know, everybody's got it. Everyone's got everyone else's back in this and it's really, really cool. It's really cool. It's like, a, I don't know, in a really lame way, similar to what sort of a, a good rock scene would have been like in the seventies or the eighties, <laughs> you know, the bands that you loved listening to and that you'd travel to go and watch, you see them, a, a, you know, 10 years later playing stadium gigs and you go, dude, so happy for you. <laughs> That's what we want. So when we're playing stadium gigs in 10 years time, then we'll be able to look back at this. Yeah. You, you got an amazing, the, the, the British cohort of creators right now is off the charts. I mean, between Tom Osmond and Jack Butcher and George Mack and like, I, I don't even know how tight all you guys are, but it's a, is a squad. It's amazing. Strong genetic pool, man. The British are coming. Yes. Yeah. Well, the Americans aren't afraid, but we're, 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 we're on the same team now, you know, and you're, and you're like a Texas podcaster. Are you full time in Austin now? What's going on? No, not yet, not yet. Uh, maybe in future we'll have to we'll have to see what happens. I'm in New York at the moment, braving the minus eight weather, and uh, back to Texas in a couple of weeks' time. Beautiful, I love it. Thank you, Chris. Talk to you soon, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you will also love my episode with Sky King, uh, who we mentioned a few times in our our conversation. Sky was the very first guest on this podcast. He actually helped bring the podcast into existence uh, with his immense energy and generosity. And another episode that you might like um, is Andrew Finn, the co-founder of G64 Ventures and Wait But Why. Uh, we touch on a lot of the same themes and wrestle with some of the same ideas that we have here. Um, though Andrew has a background in buying, managing small businesses. Um, so it's a little bit of a different context, but some of the same um, core issues and also very interesting, sweet, and thoughtful man. My final thought to share with you today, who is your character? Um, in what ways are you behaving in ways other than the way you feel you have to act every day? Are the actions you take aligned or not aligned with your, your deepest self? I think it's an interesting question and uh, something that we could all take a glance at once in a while. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. This is all about laughing and learning, building leverage, and compounding our faces off. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society. There's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. The call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage.
Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.